going to be in Mark, uh, the end of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3, as we continue walking through the gospel of Mark together. Um, And in this particular section, let me just set this up by asking a question of us. And the question is this, why, why do you think they killed Jesus? We know theologically, if we've been around the church at all, read our Bible at all, right, we know theologically why Jesus had to die, that it was part of God's purposes and plans, right? In order to deal with our sins and the sins of the world, to restore all things and make all things right, Jesus had to die as part of God's purposes. Get that. We know that, but that's not quite what I'm asking. What I'm asking is, Jesus shows up among his own countrymen, people who knew the scriptures knew God, and they killed him. So that raises the question, why? Like like at a relational level, just at a human level, a personal level, why do you think they killed Jesus? And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at four little snapshots from Mark that by the end begin to give us insight into that. I remember as a... elementary age boy sitting with my grandma and my grandma had she had a genuine faith in God and she had some understanding of Jesus she read her Bible a lot and um, she she frequently said this she said you know it's just such a shame that they killed him I mean such a good man right And what she's really saying is, it doesn't make sense. If he's really such a good, righteous man, like we believe that as followers of Jesus, why did they kill him? And these four snapshots that we're going to look at today from the Gospel of Mark begin to give us a glimpse into really the the inner workings of the human heart and soul that help us maybe understand a bit why they killed him. And then that serves up a warning really to you and to me. All right? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look down through these these four snapshots from the end of Mark chapter 2, beginning of Mark chapter 3. And this is really the way the gospel of Mark often works, actually. It's sort of like, remember those old, like, photo collages, you know, that you'd put up, hang on your wall, you know, and you have all your pictures of your kids, and you have, like, 15 pictures on there? The gospel of Mark works very much like that. He'll just have snapshot, 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 oftentimes arranged around a theme. And that's what we have here. And so in the stories we looked at last week, we saw how Jesus was being hailed as teaching with authority. The crowds were amazed at him. They were flocking to him because he's not like the other teachers. He teaches as one having authority. And yet in that last snapshot that we looked at last Sunday, uh, we began to get a hint of, but not everyone was amazed. Not everyone thought it was great. Some people were actually maybe bothered by him, challenged and upset by him. Well, in these four snapshots that we'll look at this morning, that theme is now what dominates. Why are they so upset with Jesus? So let's begin. First snapshot, um, and this snapshot has to do with who Jesus eats with, and it bugs them. It bugs them. So let's pick up in Mark chapter 2, verse 13. It says, now he went out again, out of the synagogue, by the seashore, we're talking the Sea of Galilee, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. So he's 
this is just a general summary statement of crowds flocking to Jesus, gathering around him, and he's teaching the crowds. And, and then back into the city of Capernaum, verse 14, and as he came into the city, he passed by and he saw a man named Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office. Don't think like a nice manicured office with a big desk, right, and all that. Think more like a toll booth. That's the idea of tax office. He's, he's in a toll booth. Um, and Jesus said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. And so here we get this call of Levi, also known in the other gospels as Matthew, one of Jesus's 12 apostles eventually. And he, he's a tax collector in his toll booth in Capernaum, because Capernaum was at a major crossroads. It's a great place to charge taxes on uh, goods that are being transported. He drops everything, closes up shop, follows Jesus story continues in verse 15, and it happened that as he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, and there were many of them, and they were following him. So now, now we've called Levi, we've called Matthew to Jesus, and uh, Levi invites Jesus over dinner. Hey, now that I'm following you, would you want to come to my house for dinner? Jesus says, sure. He goes to Levi's house for dinner. Who are Levi's friends? Well, they're not the religious elite. They're the tax collectors and sinners. That's who he's been associating with. That's the part of society he's at. And here's the thing. Um, tax collectors in the first century were largely despised because they were viewed as collaborators with the Romans. And the Romans were the oppressive foreign occupiers of God's land. They were the oppressors of God's people. Not only that, their images and idols were everywhere, on their shields and on their military standards. And so you have uh, idolatrous pagans occupying God's land, ruling over God's people. And then you have these tax collectors who are Jews, but they're working in concert with the Romans. And not only that, the way the Roman tax system went, the way a tax collector made money was, he just, here's what the Romans want, I'll charge you extra and take the rest for me. So it was a system that was uh, ripe for greed. And so people hated tax collectors. So here's Levi, a tax collector following Jesus, fights Jesus over dinner, and Levi's friends are tax collectors. More of the same from the dark underbelly of society. Um, not only that, it says tax collectors and sinners. And that's just as a category word, that just means those people who don't keep God's laws, who even though they're Jews and they know better, they, they're the kind of people that would, you know, like if, if you're an upstanding citizen, if you're a God-honoring person, they're the kind of people you would never make for your friends. You would never find yourself around. But here's Jesus saying to Levi, yeah, I'll come to your house for dinner. And he's eating with them. And having dinner with these people. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees, verse 16, they found out about it. They saw that. He was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors. And they said to his disciples, why is he eating with the tax collectors and the sinners? Now, in our culture, having a meal with somebody, you know, I mean, that's, that's kind of a big deal. But in their culture, it would be almost impossible to overstate the significance of who you ate with. Like... Eating together was a kind of a, an act that had massive social implications uh, and had massive social messaging. 
in their culture, like only ate with like. Social equals ate with social equals. Wealthy ate with wealthy. Poor ate with poor. Tax collectors ate with tax collectors. Sinners ate with. So if this guy, Jesus, who people are hailing as the Messiah and saying that he's, he speaks on behalf of God, if he really were a righteous person, would he be found in this house eating with these people? Not at all. No way. Clearly, this indicates he's not a righteous man. Clearly, this indicates that he, too, must be a sinner. Um, but for Jesus, what this indicates is God's kingdom is different than what you think. The door to God's kingdom is open to people that you might never expect to find there. And notice what it says about these tax collectors and sinners. It says, they were following him. It's not just they want to have a meal with him. They want to be around him. I mean, these are people who are nothing like Jesus. Like, if we're being honest, Jesus has more in common with the Pharisees than with these people. Jesus' beliefs are more like the Pharisees. Jesus' behaviors are more like the Pharisees. But the Pharisees are, are confused and challenged by him. And these, these sinners, they want to be with him. They're nothing like him, but they like him. And they want to be around him. And so they're following him. And the, the scribes and the Pharisees can't figure it out. Well, Jesus, hearing what the scribes and the Pharisees were saying to his disciples, verse 17 says, and hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not those who are healthy that need a doctor. Right? Like, this, this is just experience. Do, do healthy people go to the doctor? No. Who goes to the doctor? Sick people go to the doctor. So it's not those who are healthy who need a physician. It's those who are sick. Jesus says, applying that to himself, that general principle. So I don't come to call righteous people. I come to call sick people, sinners, to myself. I mean, and here, notice... Jesus doesn't deny the fact they're sick. But sickness is something that can be cured. And so Jesus is like, I'm calling these people to myself to heal them, to bring them into a proper human uh, working, a proper relationship with God so they can function the way they're supposed to, just like a doctor does for sick people. And so, yes, I recognize they're sick. Yes, guess what? That means they need a doctor. And guess who I am? And so I'm eating with them. That's snapshot number one, all right? And we could spend a lot more time on there. We could drill down on some details, but that's the first snapshot that begins to give us a glimpse into this growing conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes. And even though the Pharisees and the scribes have a lot of similar beliefs to Jesus and Jesus' approach to life and righteous living is very similar to theirs, they look at him now with suspicion and they're beginning to doubt that he's actually a righteous person. Hmm, something's wrong with him. Snapshot number one. Now, snapshot number two, the next one. This one has to do with fasting. John's disciples, verse 18, and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Now, fasting, as most of us know, means abstaining from food. In their context, means specifically abstaining from food to draw near to God. You read through the entire Bible, and you'll see people fast sometimes as a sign of repentance. Sometimes national fasts are called uh, among the people of Israel to repent of their national sins. 
sometimes people fast for the sake of just grieving before God, expressing their sorrow and their loss before God. Sometimes people fast just as a way in the scriptures to draw near to God generally. Here's the thing, though. We're talking about a Jewish people governed by the law of Moses. And in the law of Moses, how many fasts were commanded? One. There was only one fast ever commanded on the Day of Atonement. That was the only day they were commanded in the the law to fast. But you read through the Old Testament and you see them fasting at other occasions. And so by the time we get to Jesus' day, 1,500 years after Moses, by the time we get here, there's all sorts of kind of customs and traditions related to fasting. And the Pharisees... They fasted, if you were a faithful Pharisee, you fasted every Monday and every Thursday, twice a week, Uh, Monday and Thursday. Don't eat in order to draw near to God. And that can be a good thing, right? Fasting can be a good thing like that when it's done with a good heart, or it can be merely a religious activity to mark out that you're more spiritual than other people. Depends on your motive and your heart for it, right? Um, And so for some Pharisees, this was really a way of drawing near to God. For some, maybe it crept more into the realm of kind of checkbox religion to mark off, I'm a good Pharisee and I'm religious, right? Well, these guys come uh, to to Jesus and they're like, hey, wait, why why do we fast? Our disciples fast, but your, your disciples aren't fasting. And Jesus responds with three word pictures, a wedding, a patch, and wineskins, Three word pictures to explain as he reasons with him and trying to help him think this through. Let's think about fasting, Jesus says. And in doing so, he brings up a wedding. Uh, verse 19, and Jesus said to them, while the groom is with them, the attendants of the groom cannot fast, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. So he compares himself to a groom at a wedding feast and says, while the attendants of the groom are with him, Is that a time to fast? It's called a wedding feast, not a wedding fast, right? Like, this isn't a time to fast. This is a time to feast. So at a wedding feast, we feast. We don't fast. And Jesus is comparing himself to a groom. And he's comparing his ministry to a wedding feast. And and here we are, and people are gathering to me. This is a time for celebration. This is a time for feasting. That's the idea of this this image. And so Jesus says, no, they can't fast in that moment, but the days will come when the groom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. And so when the wedding feast is over, and when the partying is done, then if they want to fast, feel free. Jesus isn't opposed to fasting. Jesus doesn't think fasting is a bad idea. In fact, how did Jesus start his ministry? Well, if you look at Matthew and Luke's gospel, Jesus started his ministry with 40 days of fasting. He's pretty good at it, right? Like if you can fast for 40 days, you've kind of worked up to it. You're pretty good at it. He's not opposed to fasting. He's just like, time's not right. A wedding feast is a time for feasting, not fasting. And in their culture... Uh, If you know anything about the wedding feast, it wasn't just like where we have like, you know, a 20-minute ceremony and then, you know, two or three hours of food and dancing, right? Like um, a wedding feast in their culture was at least a week-long affair, sometimes longer. The whole town would be gathered together. Um, 
the whole village would sell. This would be a big deal, a big moment for the entire village. And you would spend a week eating and partying and drinking and celebrating and honoring this new couple for a whole week. That's, that's a big deal. And Jesus was like, yeah, but then when that's over, then you can fast. But during that, it's silly to fast. First, that's the first word picture he gives. Second word picture is a patch. He goes on and says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth uh, to an old garment. Why not? Well, otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. So picture a robe like they would wear in their day and age. It gets a rip in it, right? So you're going to patch the hole in your garment because you can't just go to Walmart and buy a new one, right? So they're going to patch the hole in the, in the garment. But you, you don't take brand new cloth that hasn't been shrunk and put it on old cloth. Why not? Because when you wash this, this robe now with this patch on it, what's going to happen to that patch? It's now going to shrink. And all of a sudden, now it's going to tear away, and it's going to make it worse, and you've ruined your garment, right? So that doesn't make sense. So you don't put uh, unshrunk cloth on an old garment because it's going to ruin it. Um, and then he gives it a, a, another word picture, real similar, and he says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. What was a wineskin? It's a leather bag. It's a leather bag that they would put their wine into. Why don't you put new wine into a used leather bag? Why do you have to have a brand new wine skin? Well, because when you put it in there and seal it up, the gases from the fermenting of the wine would continue to expand. And if, and if you got a new bag, the leather can stretch as it expands. But if you've got an old bag that's already stretched and a little bit brittle, and as the gases begin to expand the bag, what happens? Well, the bag bursts. And all the wine is lost, and the skins as well. No, someone puts new wine into a fresh wineskin. Everyone knows this. It just makes sense. Now, in giving these analogies of the wedding, the patch, and the wine, the wineskins, Jesus is saying, look, what I am bringing is something new. What, what's, what's happening here is like a brand new thing breaking into the world, and I'm bringing something new onto the scene. And if you're going to try to squeeze me into your old patterns of uh, religion, your old patterns of fasting, right, your old patterns of seeking God, it's not going to work. So I'm not opposed to fasting, but the fasting is going to have to be something that fits into the newness of my kingdom. Um, well, people like old things, People like the things they're comfortable with. People like the things they're used to. This, this annoys the leaders. Like, he doesn't fit. He's not doing it right. No, that's not the way we've always done it. That's not the way it works. That's not what a righteous person looks like. So that's snapshot number two, fasting and patches and wineskins. Then snapshot number three, and this one has to do with picking grain on the Sabbath. So he says, Mark uh, 2.23, And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, on Saturday. But it's not just Saturday. It's a Jewish Saturday. And what does that mean? No work. Complete rest. So he's passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along. And while they're going along, they're just picking off an occasional head of grain and they're eating it. And they're eating it. Now guess what? That's totally acceptable. You may think, what, you're picking your neighbor's grapes or something like that. Totally acceptable in their culture. Deuteronomy 23, 25 says, when you're walking through your neighbor's grain field, if you want to pick some heads of grain, feel free to do it. Just don't take your knife or your sickle with you and begin to cut down whole sheaves. 
right? So what they're doing is totally acceptable by the law of Moses. You can totally do this. The problem isn't that they're picking heads of grain. The problem is that they're picking heads of grain on the Sabbath. The Mishnah, which is a collection of like rabbinic traditions, the Mishnah actually gives 39 things that are not allowed to do on the Sabbath. Guess what one of them was? Reaping, harvesting. So now then you have to ask, well, what constitutes harvesting? What constitutes reaping on the Sabbath? Does picking a head of grain constitute reaping on the Sabbath? Well, apparently to these guys, it does. Look what happens. So the disciples are doing this, verse 24. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Why are they reaping on the Sabbath? They're harvesting. They plucked some grain while they walked through the grain field. On the Sabbath, why are they doing what's lawful? And Jesus responds with scripture. Now, Jesus says to them, haven't you ever read, which Jesus uses that line a lot, and it's important. Who's he talking to? Pharisees and scribes. Who are the Pharisees and scribes? They're like some of the most religious people of the day. They're the people who taught the scriptures. They're the people who had jobs like mine, Bible teacher people, right? Uh, they're the people who would have run the synagogue school on, you know, during the week so your kids could have been taught the scriptures. Do they know the Bible? Yes, they know their Bible. But Jesus says to them, with a little bit of an underhanded jab, haven't you ever read? Haven't you read your Bible? And so he says, haven't you ever read uh, what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How uh, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and then he gave it to those who were with him? So Jesus recalls this moment from the Old Testament scriptures, from the stories of David and Samuel, this moment where David is on the run from Saul, who's trying to kill him. And, and, and you know, now they're hungry, and they arrive at Nob, which was where the tabernacle was in David's day. And he comes to the high priest and says, you got anything we can eat? The only thing I got here is the tabernacle bread. The tabernacle bread was 12 loaves of bread that we put out every Sabbath um, on the, the table inside the tabernacle. And then the next Sabbath, you'd pull the old bread out, put new bread in, and the old bread now would be given to the priest to eat. And it was their bread to eat by the Old Testament law. And the, so in this story, um, David and his men show up, and that's the only thing the priest says he has to eat. I only have some of that bread, but it's only lawful for the priest. Um, and... Technically, therefore, by the Old Testament law, David and his men weren't supposed to eat it. But the priest gave it to them, and they ate it. Why? Because there's a higher principle at stake than just keeping this law, right? The bread was given to the priest because the priests weren't given any land, and the priests, therefore, didn't have any way to grow their own grain, so they were taken care of by the people, the whole point of the bread was to make sure people had stuff to eat. And the principle of human well-being is higher than the principle of this bread's only for the priest. And so the, the priest gives it to David. David breaks it and gives it to his men, and they eat. In other words, um, there's, there's, there's lower and higher principles even in the nature of God's law. And so Jesus says this in verse 27. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, 
not man for the Sabbath. The whole reason God instituted the Sabbath was for human well-being. Not, he didn't create humans so they could keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath exists for people's good, just like the bread of, of the presence in the tabernacle existed for people's good. And so sometimes it makes more sense to actually do uh, what's good for people on the Sabbath than just technically keep the technicalities of the law. And then Jesus ends by saying, and the Son of Man, meaning himself, the Son of Man is actually Lord of the Sabbath. As the ultimate son of David, as the high king described in Daniel chapter 7, the son of man, as that one, guess what? I have the authority to make rulings on the Sabbath. So all you guys who wrestle with what's right and wrong to do on the Sabbath, have all your customs and all your traditions, guess what? I'm over all of that, and I can actually make final authoritative rulings on the Sabbath. And what I say is, the Sabbath is in man's best interest and we don't need to make it so technical that you're now making it difficult for people to actually have do good on the Sabbath. Now, pause before we look at the last story. Why did they kill Jesus? Well, here's the thing. The Pharisees and the scribes, so often, for those of us who have been around the church for a while, we read the Bible, we, we get the d- distinct impression that these guys are like, those are just some awful people. They're wicked people. They're bad people. But they weren't. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were some of the very best Jews of the day. They were, as I said, the people who ran the synagogue schools and taught your kids. They were community leaders. They knew the scriptures better than anyone else. Their entire existence was driven by a desire to please God. Like Their whole goal as Pharisees was to be as pure as they could because they recognized idolatry and sin is what led to the, the exile in the, old co- in the Old Testament, right? So we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to be holy and pure. And so their whole goal was to be as pure as possible. Uh, these were upstanding citizens. They had, uh, they had wives and kids that they loved devotedly, and they taught their kids the scriptures. They were in, they were in service every weekend, just like some of you. Um, they loved to worship God. They knew the scriptures. These were good people, the most moral, upstanding people of Jesus' day. And yet, and yet now, Jesus is a problem. And they keep bumping up against him. And he doesn't fit. And so why did they kill Jesus? Well, snapshot number four, as Mark puts all these pictures together, snapshot number four begins to tell us what's the root of the problem. Notice that Jesus, he, he's argued from experience. He's, he's argued logically with them, like, Think about it logically. You don't, you don't fast at a feast. It's, not, it's illogical, right? He's argued about doctors and medicine, right? Like, so he's reasoned from experience. He's reasoned from He's quoted scripture, right? He's quoted scripture, and they still don't get it. They, I mean, like, these are good people, smart people, God-fearing people, Bible-loving people, and they don't get it. And Jesus is arguing, and he's persuading. He's trying everything, and they don't get it. Why? Look at the beginning of chapter 3, snapshot number 4. 
and he entered a synagogue again, and there was a man there whose hand was withered. Kind of like this, right? Didn't work. His hand is withered. Um, And catch this, they, meaning the Pharisees and scribes, the leaders, those good men, and they were watching him closely to see to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Think about the irony of this. Like, he's argued from Scripture. He's argued from experience. He's argued logically with them. They admit he has the power to heal. It's not that he has the power. They, they acknowledge, yep, he can do miracles. You would think that might be persuasive. No, but we're going to watch closely. So even, even if he can heal, that that still is not going to change anything. Um, and so they're watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath, because again, you know, you're not supposed to, apparently you're not supposed to do miracles on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said, Jesus, knowing all this, right, he said to the, the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. I appreciate this. Jesus, you know, he could have done this after service gone to the prayer room, pulled him aside, healed him there. No one would have known. He could have avoided some conflict, right? But he didn't. Come forward. Brings the man down in front of everybody on the Sabbath. Uh, Come forward. Um, And the man does. And then while, you know, standing next to this man, Jesus looks at the crowd and says, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or harm? The answer up to the rhetorical question would be, It's always good to do good, even on the Sabbath, right? I mean, and you certainly don't want to do evil on the Sabbath. Harm is a translation of the word for evil. So you certainly don't want to do evil on the Sabbath. I mean, if you're going to ever ever obey God, you should do it on God's day, right? So so it's it's always good to do good on the Sabbath. Um, And so he asked him the question, uh, is uh, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm, to save a life or kill it? How do they respond? They don't say anything. Plead the fifth. Stay silent. Why? Because they know there's no good answer to the question for them. There's no good answer to the question for them. And notice Jesus' response. After looking around at them with anger, frustration, exasperation. After looking around at them, grieved at the hardness of their heart. Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he healed him on the Sabbath. And his hand was restored. And how did the Pharisees respond? And the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might put him to death. He just healed a man. And their response is not, that's amazing. Their response is, we got to kill him. Never think that if, if I just had enough evidence, if I could just see one of those miracles, I would believe. Miracles by themselves do not induce belief. Seeing miracles by themselves that will not make you or anyone else believe. Right? Miracles alone are not enough. What's their problem? Why do they want to kill Jesus? Here's the thing. The problem is not located 
with their eyes. They've seen the miracles. They're watching to see if he'll do one on the Sabbath. They know he can heal. It's not with their eyes. They've seen it. It's not with, it's not with their, their brains. They're smart people. And Jesus argued logically with them, right? Jesus uh, argued from scripture with them. Jesus gave them examples from experience, right? They can understand all that. That's not the problem. Where lies the problem? The problem lies with their heart. Grieved, it says, at their hardness of heart. That's the problem. And the heart in biblical language is the control center of the person. And their control center is hardened towards Jesus, resistant towards Jesus. It doesn't matter what he says, what scripture he quotes, what miracle he does. It does not matter. It will not change anything because their heart says he's a problem and he has to go. Maybe you've experienced that with, with somebody. It doesn't matter how kind you are, how helpful you are. It doesn't matter what you say, what you do. They just don't like you. You ever experienced that? They just don't like you. And you do your best to try to be kind. You do your best to try to help them see things differently. You do your best to try to, you know, maybe help them come around. And then it's like, all right, I've come to the point where it's like, eh, it's not going to do any good. They just don't like me. And that's where the Pharisees are at. They've put on these negative glasses towards Jesus, right? These gray negative glasses that say, he's a problem. And he has to go. Um, and it doesn't matter what he says, what he does, how he argues, they, they can't see anything else than that he's a problem. In fact, they keep looking for all the way. They're watching closely. Yep, see, he's a problem. He fixed a man's hand. He, he miraculously healed it on the Sabbath. That's a problem, um, right? They're looking to find out how much of a problem he is. This is just the way it works in life, isn't it? When somebody's heart is hard towards somebody else, they need you to keep being a problem so that they feel justified in thinking you're a problem, We've all done this. Husbands have done this towards wives. Wives have done this towards husbands. Right? We've all done this. Friends have done this towards friends. Extended family towards extended. We've all done this. When you're so convinced someone's a problem and they've done a few things to annoy you, then you've then you got to look for everything else they do wrong so that they can keep being a problem so you're justified in feeling that they're a problem. And that's where the Pharisees are at. They have hardened their heart. They've closed it down. And it, they are resistant to Jesus himself. And the reality is, as I said, these were some of the most God-fearing people of the day. Which means, just knowing the Bible and just showing up at services doesn't make you safe from a hard heart. True? Every... Every pastor that I've ever known could tell you about people who have sat in service for four, five, six years, and then at some point just walked away and said, I'm kind of done with all of that. Done with all of that. Um, or guess what? The reality is we could sit in service and never fully harden our heart, but I think it's really easy for those of us who even say we love Jesus to kind of make Jesus in our own image. Right? Like since he's not here in the flesh to do crazy things that annoy us and drive us crazy like it did with these guys, like, right? Like 
we can just kind of turn down the volume on the parts about Jesus and the teachings of Jesus we don't like and turn up the volume on the parts we do like. <sighs> now Jesus is good, right? But, but the fact is, if we actually want to follow Jesus, if we don't want to slip into what the Pharisees did, we have to guard our hearts. We have to guard our hearts and make sure that we're actually open and soft and pliable to Jesus so that what Jesus says goes. Whether I like it or not, whether it's easy or not, whether it's comfortable or not, whether it agrees with me or not, can Jesus disagree with you and still be good and right and in charge? We have to guard our hearts so that we don't become like these Pharisees and in the end, we're resistant to Jesus and we're, maybe we'll go through the motions to keep up appearances, but we find ourselves away from God and his plans. Listen to these words from Hebrews chapter three, verse 12. We put that last passage up on the screen. Take care, brothers and sisters, that there will not be any one of you, in any one of you, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Take care, brothers and sisters. Watch your heart, brothers and sisters. Make sure you don't end up like this, brothers and sisters. How do you do that? By being humble enough to admit I might be wrong and he might be right. By being willing to take off the negative glasses and say, I don't always understand Jesus. And I don't even always necessarily like Jesus and some of the things he teaches. But Jesus is still Lord. He's still in charge. And what he says goes, whether I always like it or not, whether the circumstances he's led me into are comfortable or not, what Jesus says goes. He's in charge. I think that's a powerful warning for us from these four stories. Guard yourself from having an evil, hard, unbelieving heart that's resistance to the will of God because it's different from what you think it should be and the way you expected it to happen. Let's pray. God, open our hearts to you. Soften our hearts before you. Humble us that we might surrender our expectations, our beliefs, our, our purposes and values and ambitions, we might surrender all of that to you. Hold it with open hand that we would trust you with our whole heart, that we might be soft before you and willing to listen to what you have to say to us. Lead us by your spirit. Give us a soft heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.